continuing with this um, Dhamma teaching that Lumpur Cha was giving to the nuns community at Wat Bapong. Uh, the title is One Day Passes. And it's in the, uh, the bigger section of practicing Dharma. So they say, Wat Bapong is a model monastery. And some people say, I'm an arahant. Isn't that so? But that's just a matter of people's words. Is it really so? The truth of it resides with me. When they say, there's an arahant, an arahant has appeared. Should I be elated by that? Whether I am or not, that's just others talking. We can't prohibit people from talking, but we have to inspect ourselves. And whatever is really the case, only we can know. We don't need to depend on the words of other people. We rouse ourselves like this. They rouse, they rouse us like this. You should know for yourselves and not just believe the words of others. Please keep this perspective. Especially for the older people here, 60 or maybe 70 years old, be aware that days and nights keep passing. Today will soon be over. The sun rose in the morning and now another day is hastening to its end. Have firm determination not to put your mind in turmoil. Don't create distractions and confusion with others. Be one who is easy to speak to, easy to teach, not proud or opinionated. It isn't forbidden to have views. You'll always have them, but don't get all bound up by them, firmly attached to your ideas. Release them, let them go. If you don't, they become heavy. Uh, again, um, so some significant points here, and uh, Lumpur Chao was very well aware that um, people judged him. Uh, some people judged him to be an arahant, some people not. And uh, he doesn't say it here, but um, one of the particular ways he talked about this, he said, um, uh, "He said I'm like a, uh, I feel like I'm like an old tree, and the birds come to settle in the branches, and some of the birds say he's an arahant, he's an arahant." And other birds say, he's not an arahant, he's not an arahant. To me, it's just the chattering of the birds. That's a very good way of, uh, of describing it. That uh, you know, the um, projections and assumptions and uh, uh, opinions of, of people are going to vary, but um, it's up to each one of us to know where our mind is at. And then, uh, whether you're 60 or 70, or <laughs> 20 or 30, 30 or 40, uh, the days and nights keep passing, and um, you know that that's uh, resolution to not not let the time pass idly by, to not waste the time, but rather to use the the time skillfully. And as he says, don't create distractions and confusion with others. Be one who is easy easy to speak to, easy to teach, not proud or opinionated. It isn't forbidden to have views; you'll always have them, but don't get bound up with them. So it's natural for our mind to create opinions and perspectives and judge, I like, I don't like, I approve, I disapprove. But the quality of, of mindfulness that says, oh, there's an opinion just getting born, or there's, a, there's, uh, there's something that I'm liking or something I'm disliking, the, the more quick and uh, com comprehensive the mindfulness is in appreciating the arising of moods and, and judgments, opinions, then whether they're there or not, then the mind isn't uh, dragged around by them.
We are taught to relinquish the five aggregates, the five khandhas, that they are something heavy. Form, feeling, perception, thought and consciousness, these are heavy things. If we carry heavy things, they will be heavy for us. Form, feelings and the rest we see as being self, a person, I and others. And we carry them around, that way they become heavy. The Buddha said, please put them down. Because we hold these bodies as ours, we hold feelings of happiness and suffering, pain and pleasure as ourselves. Don't do this. It's very heavy. The Buddha wants us to let go of them. Sanya refers to perception, recollection of various things. Calling it yourself is heavy. Let it go. Know it and put it down. Sankara are all, uh, are all conditioned phenomena of body and mind. Don't grasp them. They are heavy. Consciousness, the faculty of knowing, is the same. All five aggregates are heavy if you hold them as self. They are only nature. They are feeling and perception, arising, thinking and awareness. No one is their owner. Holding them to be self is the heavy way. Put them down. They're merely aggregates, merely form, feeling, memory. Remember this merely, quote-unquote, and don't grasp so firmly. If you know them like this, liberation appears instantly. Before it was a matter of convention, designation as me and mine. Now there's knowledge that they are merely the aggregates. Liberation is at hand. You go beyond the conventional understanding. Before, you held the five khandhas, the aggregates, and it was heavy. Now letting go, there's lightness. When you let go, things are extinguished. When someone admonishes us, we should accept it gladly and say, Sadhu, how wonderful! We don't have to hire them to do it, they, just, they still admonish us. Even if we are right and they say we are wrong, we should still listen gladly. Wisdom can arise. They are giving us something precious. In Zen, they teach to reduce pride. They don't, say a lot of, they don't say that a lot of learning is necessary. When they sit in meditation, someone walks behind them with a stick. If someone's falling asleep, he gets whacked. Then he raises his palms together and thanks. Thank you, teacher. Thank you for beating me. Thank you for waking me. How about us? Would we be able to offer thanks? Maybe I'll have one of you walk around with a stick if anyone is sleeping. Whack! What do you think? Will you be able to accept it? So many, uh, many things there, and uh, particularly about picking up the five khandhas and carrying them around. And um, that uh, uh, I often tell the story of how um, uh, I really I take very directly Lumpur Cha's advice on picking things up. And uh, uh, in front of the the main temple building at Wapapong, um, the the Oppositor Hall, they have uh, a number of old sema stones, the boundary stones from uh, old monasteries that they have, people had donated or collected, and they just sort of arranged in a kind of rock garden in front. And some of them are quite tall, maybe sort of, uh, a meter and a half, two meters tall, quite, quite thick stones. And uh, and uh, one day somebody um, was visiting Wapapong, and they were kind of walking around the monastery, traveling about and looking at the different things and seeing the 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 many kutis of the monk section and the nun section and and uh, and there was the um, uh, the construction of the opposite hall was underway and they were saying oh Lumpur you've got so much going on here you've got you know dozens of 
of monks and nuns that are under your guidance and uh, you have this whole big building project going on and, and you have all these different branch monasteries, 30, 40 branch monasteries all uh, around. You've got so many things to do, so many responsibilities. It must be you know, really hard work for you. And Lumpur pointed at the um, the Sema stones and said, see those, see those uh, stones there? And they said, yeah. So do you do you think they're heavy? I said, oh yeah. I mean that 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 tall one. That's that's really huge. They're, certainly they're really heavy. And Lumpur Charger said, not if you don't pick them up. So I uh, I take that as very uh, very pertinent advice that it's it's whether you pick things up. You know, the heaviness comes from picking things up and carrying them around. If you don't pick them up and carry them around, they're not heavy. <laughs> so that experience of heaviness comes from grasping things and carrying them around. So the, the trick or the, the skill is to relate to the five khandhas, to the body, the personality, uh, thoughts and feelings, emotions and uh, perceptions, just to relate to those without carrying them around, without a, a grasping attitude. Then it's a, um, they're, they're still there, you don't have to destroy them or you don't have to uh, knock the rocks uh, down or blow them up. or They're still there, but... Um, you don't have to carry them around. You don't have to identify with them. Uh, then to go to this word merely, they are merely form, feeling, and memory. Remember this merely, and in the Thai language, kenan is an expression that uh, that uh, Cha would use quite often. It's just that. It's only that. It's just. It's uh, this is all it is. It's not a not a big thing. That uh, to create a framework for how we. Um, experience things it's just it's just liking it's just disliking it's just comfort it's just discomfort it's just getting what you want or it's just not getting what you want that's all it's not a it's not a big thing and that if we don't make uh, uh, a, a big deal about what we like and dislike or comfort and discomfort and praise and, and criticism and so on then there really isn't very much there it's it, it's just that it's merely merely this merely Rupa Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. And uh, then uh, talking once again about admonishment, um, there's a place in the scriptures where the, the Buddha says, uh, if uh, you are offered a choice between someone, uh, uh, say, offering you a, a pile of gold bullion worth uh, a fortune, or offering you uh, admonishment, uh, which would be the most valuable? Which would you choose? Well, Venerable Sir, I would choose the gold. <laughs> then uh, the, a poor choice because it's actually much more valuable rather than having a pile of gold to uh, receive that kind of helpful feedback uh, feedback from uh, from others about uh, our conduct and so uh, that uh, it was one of those in instances where the Buddha was uh, giving a very memorable tangible example of course you know whether you're, uh, most people would definitely choose a pile of gold rather than being told that uh, they someone's unhappy with the way you speak or, or something that you've done and we don't like to be corrected or scolded or, or, um, or have our faults pointed out to us but we do like precious things we do like things that are, are of value but the Buddha is saying uh, well actually that kind of admonition that feedback is, is far more precious uh, to us than a, than a pile of gold so any thoughts, reflections, perceptions? Don't be shy. Yes. I was thinking of what uh, we were saying yesterday, you were saying yesterday, uh, about the fact of uh, 
right speech and waiting for the right moment and occasion and mood for raising a subject with somebody. I realized that if I wait long enough, it just goes away. I mean, <laughs> so I realize it's not important anymore. And sometimes I'm in doubt because I think, well, it's not important anymore for me, but it could be of help for the other mm -hmm. person. So what is the, the best action at that point? Uh, you just uh, raise the issue also from, uh, in a way, more equanimous place, uh, or uh, uh, you just let it drop? Well, it, it depends on the situation, um, but if the motivation, if you see that someone is causing themselves and others harm, and it's it's not a big issue for you anymore, but you realize, oh, this person's really, um, they don't realize the, the, the kind of chaos that they're causing, and so it's really an act of kindness, and just so, again, once so wait, waiting for a, a good moment. Um, but also, then you can trust that you're not coming from a place of aversion or reactivity, you know, oh, that, they really don't realize what they're doing. So it's definitely coming from a place of kindness, and then just again waiting for the for the the good moment, which you can't really predict, but it's just a, you know, <laughs> testing the the wind, and then and then uh, almost invariably, if you're coming from a, a a a very cool and kindly place, then even if the person rejects what you say, uh, uh, you know. I'll, Immediately, oh, they say, who, who are you to give me that, you know, that, that kind of a line, or you know, how dare you? That if you are coming from a, a cool and kindly place, then something in them recognizes that. And even if they just sort of push you away immediately, then there's going to be, to some degree, there's going to be a, a, a receptivity to what you said, because the very way in which you said it and where it's coming from, then a person's much more likely to go, Actually, I think she's right. <laughs> and when it's not just in a situation of being confronted or, or they feel they've got to fend you off, but so later on when they're by themselves or it's a quiet moment, they go, damn, I think she's right. And so that, that um, so the intentionality behind it is really most very significant. But you, you do your best to choose a, a good moment, and then, as uh, again, in the, as Lumpur was saying in the reading yesterday, um, if people accept it, then they do. If they don't accept it, well, that's that's their business. It's up to them. You know, you've you've done your bit, and then let people make of it what they will. And you, it's not under personal control. So you know, you do your best, and then uh, you make your input, and then leave it alone. That'd be my my advice. Any other thoughts, questions? Okay. Being a teacher or a revered elder is difficult. No one dares to admonish us because they feel so much awe and deference. You nuns and lay people get some profit since I'm always admonishing you and pointing things out. But if I do wrong, it's hard to find anyone who'll tell me because of the traditional fear and respect for the Ajahn. So for an elder, practice can become difficult. We may be doing things wrong, but no one will point them out, and we become oblivious to ourselves. There's too much deference. Here we are all fairly comfortable. 
So if occasionally we do wrong and someone says something about it, we should feel it's a great thing. Don't try to wiggle away or argue. Look at it and understand what's going on. We're living in a pretty large group. When you're about to do something, you should recall the head person, such as here at Wabapong. The monks and nuns should think about me, since I'm the abbot, the one responsible for leading and advising you. If you're about to do something that may not be right, and is likely to bring turmoil and distress, think of me first, that I'm the one who gives you teachings and good counsel here. Having a place to stay, the monastery and its dwellings, you could say that I was the cause of this because I came here first, and the rest of you were able to follow and live here in comfort. So, if you can recollect my virtuous efforts for a tiny moment, that would be good. Then think, is this the right thing to do? Will it be beneficial? All of you practicing here should rely on the virtues of the senior people, and then you'll have harmony and happiness in your practice. You should think about the head nuns. When you act, recollect me. Do I charge rent for you to stay here? If you go to a hotel, you'll always have to you'll always have to pay for your room, but there's no such thing in the monastery. It's good for you to consider this. At night, when you're in your kuti or your dwelling, think about it. Am I seeking any gain from you? As a monk, I'm indifferent. I received all of you who wanted to stay here. My intentions are good. I have love for you in a way of dharma, not love in a worldly way, so there needn't be any friction or fear of exploitation. If there is something wrong, you should come forth and speak about it. Some of you have never asked me anything. Not just amongst the nuns, I've also never spoken with some of the monks. We have a large group. So this can happen. It can be hard when you're only one of many. So all of you have to depend on yourselves and make your practice strong, taking care of yourselves to your utmost. So uh, that is uh, Lumpur, uh, I feel is very, very wise, very skillful. Um, uh, it was also... Um, pointing out that recognizing the dynamics of his position, how people are very deferential and sort of in awe of the Ajahn. Uh, it must be said that a few of the Western monks were quite happy to give him feedback. <laughs> and uh, Lumpur Sumedho often talks about how uh, he came to uh, Ajahn Chah with a list of Ajahn Chah's shortcomings one time and, and uh, went through his list uh, of, uh, of things that Ajahn Chah was getting wrong. And uh, then it, when he uh, it's sort of gone, he uh, had completed his his uh, collection of uh, points that he wanted to bring to Ajahn Chah's attention, then the Lumpur said, well, thank you very much, Sumedho, for, for pointing all this out to me. I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, but um, yeah, perhaps it's not a bad thing that I'm imperfect. Otherwise, you might be looking for the Buddha somewhere outside your own mind. Interesting way to respond, or to to uh, also include that aspect of it. The um, also appreciating that uh, he does have did have a very very exalted place in most people's minds. Then skillfully using that, say, um, as a way of getting some kind of reflection on action and speech. Okay, if you if, you're, if you have the the impulse to say something or do something that might be unskillful or you might be coming from a place of anger or selfishness or self-righteousness, then, you know, as he said, you know, think of me first. And so 
uh, I was asked a skillful use of that um, kind of exalted position that people put him in. Not that they should hold him up like that, but because they are holding him up like that, then they can use him as a as a way of getting perspective on on their their own thoughts and uh, and feelings. And then uh, this la- uh, last point that he makes here, I feel is is very very uh, significant. Uh, am I seeking any gain from you? As a monk, I'm indifferent. I received all of you who wanted to stay here. My intentions are good. So that, I feel, that, uh, and I was talking about this a few days ago. I think I feel this is a very very important thing that, uh, and the, the Buddha makes the same comment. Like the, the 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 disciples need the teacher. The teacher doesn't need the disciples. <laughs> if uh, someone who's in a role of teaching or leading needs people to be their their students or their followers or their their devotees, then they're they're creating a lot of trouble for themselves and the people around them. And uh, when he says indifferent, it's like you know, that uh, he was happy to be available and to teach, but he didn't need to have people respecting him or uh, revering him or, or being his students. That. Uh, and so um, that might be a little bit hard to to relate to. That well, when he says I'm indifferent, it's like, was uh, are we just a pain in the neck that <laughs> that we just sort of uh, they'd rather not have us around? But it, it's it's not as though there's an aversion there. So uh, someone in, in a teaching role like Lumpur Char was very happy to be available, very happy to teach, but not needing that kind of reverence or or, or a group of people. Saying we respect you, we admire you, we think you're you're wise and wonderful, does not needing that at all. So it's a um, uh, that sense. Am I seeking any gain from you? It's it's a simple sentence, but I feel it's there's a lot contained in there. It creates a it's a describing a very very skillful dynamic that the the teacher's not trying to get anything from the position or the 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 role they have or the the admiration or or or, or faith um, uh, the the response from a, any particular group and so that uh, that makes a, a very spacious uh, very skillful relationship i would say my intentions are good i've loved you in the way of dharma not a love in a worldly way so there needn't be any friction or fear of exploitation so exploitation is where, say, the, the teacher is taking advantage of people's faith and trying to get something from them, either their, their devotion or their financial offerings or, or uh, their, um, their, their energy, their, their effort, making them work for, for them, taking advantage of somebody's faith and interest. And, and that is a um, it's very unskillful and, and unhelpful direction to go. And so that... Uh, that sense of, uh, of the, the teacher giving that kind of space. And I, even though I couldn't understand the Thai language very much, that was just from the way Ajahn Chah operated and related to the group and how you know, if uh, you know, he, would, he would crack a joke or he'd say something and people would sort of laugh, he wouldn't go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I said something very wise, very witty. You know, sometimes the, he... He would get a laugh, but there was absolutely nothing there. Like he wasn't like feeding on it at all. It was it's hard to describe. It's like he wasn't relishing that sense of approval or or um, people appreciate. He didn't need to be. He didn't need, need his jokes to be funny. <laughs> he didn't need to be to be loved or appreciated. And um, 
not in a kind of, in a cold way, but just that that what was really striking to me was like, wow, he doesn't he doesn't need to be approved or appreciated. He doesn't need to get anything from anybody. Wow, <laughs> that he wasn't cold or in, indifferent or, or dismissive, but so he's very attentive and attuned to the people around. But he didn't need to get anything from anybody, and that was like. And I, I remember feeling in those early early days, well, wow. I've never seen that <laughs> in any kind of person who's sort of speaking or or, or leading or, or in a in a kind of a performance of any kind where they didn't need to get anything from the the, the group. They were totally independent and uh, just responding to what what's what's going to be useful and what putting uh, words and and um, responses out that are. Uh, Appropriate for the people and the questions people are asking, or what's going to be beneficial for the for the those who are gathered, but needing absolutely nothing from everyone who was there. That, that was a, uh, something I had never ever seen in my life before. Like, wow, that's he's totally independent. <laughs> he doesn't need anything from anybody. Uh, how extraordinary! And so it was a one of those things that. Was very very impressive and very very inspiring, and and I feel it's a it's an important uh, principle, and so that um, and that it's also in terms of accepting and receiving people as students. If if you're uh, and maybe some of you have been in this kind of position or, or are you know as, as teachers or leaders or in in uh, the work situations that you have, that if you have the sense of I'm doing this for you, and now you owe me. That that that's really un- <laughs> I do all this work for you, so you you owe me back, and so you should be doing X Y Z for me, uh, and so um, as a kind of, as if it was a kind of a business deal, and that, again that was absolutely nothing of that from promotion Shah at all. Like he was totally happy to be available, talk to people for you know ten, fifteen, uh, eighteen hours a day or more. Um, be available and and not expecting anything back. Not like I've I've been giving you all this instruction and now you owe me or you should be doing this for me or uh, I don't really, I, I've invested all of this in you so I don't want my investment to be wasted. Uh, that's like even saying the words. It's kind of it's weird to say the words because it's just like there's absolutely nothing in him of that nature. And I feel that's a very beautiful, very skillful example that you're. It's not a Dhamma teaching is not a business deal. <laughs> it's not a, a kind of a, 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 a quid pro quo. I, you know, I do this for you, you do this for me. It, that, that's not the spirit of it at all. And if you read the suttas and you see how the Buddha operated, it's just putting uh, putting things out into the world, responding to different situations, and then whatever people make of it, that's their business. It's not owed anything or not expecting anything back. Like I've done this for you, and now you should do this for me. Like no, I mean, as I say, it's it's weird even saying the words, to, because there's just n- nothing of that there in the, in the Buddha's teaching and his whole way of operating. Also, in uh, in Lumpur Cha, that um, it's not a kind of uh, uh, a deal. <laughs> yeah. And so the and I must say, when I come across that in in other, uh, when I, I I find that in other people who are in a the role of, of leadership or teaching, and and uh, they're expecting to get some kind of uh, 
it's, it's kind of seen as an exchange. I'm doing this for for, for the company or for the for the community or for the monastery or for the family, and they should be doing X Y Z for me. There's always a feeling of oh, how sad. That's a, a very narrow and uh, and a, a stressful way to to operate, and far more uh, skillful. I would say far more in, in accord with with Dhamma, just to put things out there and expect nothing in return, and uh, not to uh, not uh, not to wish for anything or be angling for anything or expecting. And then when things show up, people are appreciative or they give you flowers or <laughs> they show, how can I help? You know, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasant surprise rather than anything that's expected or or uh, is felt to be due. Like, uh, but uh, So I do feel it's a, it's a small statement, but there's a lot contained within that. And I feel it's, even if you're not, overtly in a role of teaching or leading that it's it's very good advice for us in the human world the way we can relate with each other just to be doing what you can to help and uh, not expecting anything back and then life is got a lot of pleasant surprises if you're always feeling the world is indebted to you then it's a very uh, tight and stressful way to to live you always feel like the world isn't giving you enough I would suggest. So, any thoughts? Yes. Um, <clears throat> with being a, a teacher, I suppose people, um, you, you sort of have to want your student to excel better than you. So it's quite a selfless mm -hmm. um, role. It's kind of like quite a dharma role already, you know. And, um, as long as the teacher feels that, yes, if the exactly. teacher always wants to be better than their students, then well, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, naturally, you you might, if you're a teacher, you might think, oh, well, he's getting a bit good there. What's, you know, maybe I need to brush up. But that that's not really being a, a good teacher, is it? You, you, if you're a good teacher, you'll be very happy to see your student just outshining you. Yes. Outshining you. That, yeah. Exactly. So I think naturally we just. It's quite a difficult thing to do unless, unless you're, uh, you know, <laughs> do it dharmaically, if you can say mm. that. Yeah, no, uh, that's a good point. I think that uh, it, whether it's a, a dharma teacher or a, a school teacher or a university teacher, whatever it might be, that that rejoicing in the fact that your your students are far more accomplished than you are. Right. That uh, uh, it's uh, uh, that's. I would say it's very, a very skillful aspiration. It's not always the case. <laughs> that uh, sometimes someone in that role of, of teaching or leading, they feel they've always got to be asserting their authority or you know, trying to p put people kind of in their place or, or to, to p put them down. But uh, I would say that it would, it, for a skillful teacher, you should rejoice in the fact that you're, you're being outshone by your, by your students. You know, hooray! Very good, <laughs> but, uh, and that uh, it's not something that is uh, taken as a as a loss or a, anything that needs to be. They um, uh, you wouldn't want to suppress someone's abilities or their their skill or their potential just because they're they're a, uh, uh, demonstrating that they're they're a brighter light than you are. Yes. 
Do you know if there, there was any significant personality change or behavior change for Ajahn Chah before attainment, after attainment, throughout the years? Any changes? Um, well, I think quite a few things. Um, I'm not sure about personality. I mean, he was he was always very um, verbal and very reflective, but uh, he talks about being um, filled with doubt. He was a sort of Olympic class doubter, and um, and uh, the only one of the five hindrances he didn't specialize in was was dullness. He was very angry, very lustful, very doubtful, very restless. So dullness was the only one he didn't feature. But the, all, all the others, he said that that's, and that he so he would often say. That's why he, if he developed any wisdom, it was because he had so many defilements, and so that um, I think you know, in in terms of personality, that I think he was always quite you know, verbal, quite quick-witted, and his uh, his mind was always very reflective. So that that carried on, but things like uh, his. Uh, uh, angriness or his lustfulness or his doubting that all the the energy that went into those really got quite radically transformed so um, that because uh, you know, he talks about that uh, um, particularly doubting that uh, his mind was always just um, worrying and, and getting caught in, in questioning and, and then trying to think his way to the end of a doubt and that when uh, when he he'd really um, uh, arrived at the quality of realization that then that that whole doubting habit just didn't have any fuel, so he still had an alert mind and was still very reflective, but it didn't go into what's the right thing or or um, is this okay is this not okay and the, the kind of stressful doubting that his mind was so prone to. Yes. Yeah. It's quite interesting how it seems there is like an equation of the greater the selflessness, the greater uh, the merit. Because in the monastery context, or in Dhamma, there's a lot of talk about merit. What you what you actually get from your practice, whether it's goal oriented or practice oriented. Mm -hmm. So, but it's it's quite. I would like you to to maybe elaborate a bit. Let's, the greater the selflessness the greater the merit, so bringing back everything in a monastery context into communal life, so serving, serving, but at this, or, or, or learning, or having a role, or not having a role, or in a sangha, and then at the same time uh, removing the actual so-called personal achievement or whatever, or exchange, you're actually mm -hmm. doing it with a different mindset. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, uh, it's... Uh, the, it is quite traditional as well to be talked about. The boon, mm -hmm. or traditionally married, what do you get from all of this? Well, the, the, the traditional way, that's of the, the um, culturally, merit gets very much aligned to giving material objects. What's called amisadana. The, the, and so the tam, tamboon, uh, to make merit, is often regarded, I'll go to the monastery and make merit by make, making material offerings. But that's a very, that's a kind of um, most shallow or the, the coarsest kind of merit making. And there's a, a very significant sutta that I, I like to quote called the Velama Sutta, 
Velama, V-E-L-A-M-A, Velama Sutta. And the, the Buddha talks about the previous lifetime when he was an extremely wealthy Brahmin in this town called Velama. And uh, it says in some uh, very ancient uh, past age, this extremely wealthy Brahmin made this offering of 10,000, oh, no, 84,000 silver pots filled with gold, 84,000 gold pots filled with silver, 10,000 elephants, 10,000 horses, 10,000 everything. So made this huge uh, offering. It um, doesn't say who the offering was made to, but it was a, made this material offering. And then, and then he says, so that they, the, the merit that came from that, that massive material offering wasn't as great as the merit that, came, that comes from keeping the five precepts. Uh, and then the, the merit of keeping the five precepts is not as... As a whole series, I think about a dozen or 14 different examples he gives in a, in a sequence. And so then it's a, so that it's more meritorious... Uh, to keep the to uh, to keep the five precepts, and then more meritorious than that is to practice loving kindness for the time it takes to milk a cow. It's about twenty minutes. So that uh, so that uh, a material offering worth kind of billions and billions of pounds is not as meritorious as keeping the five precepts. It's not as meritorious as practicing loving kindness for twenty minutes. And then right at the end of the whole sequence, he says, but even more meritorious than all of that is to sustain the insight into anicca for a finger snap. So um, in, in res- response to your question, I'll say that the, the basis of the insight into not-self is the anicca sanya. And so that's when the, the Buddha spells it out in the advice he gives to Megia. He says, if you, uh, if you, uh, if you genuinely take to heart the... the uh, the insight into anicca, into impermanence, then that feeds the insight into not self. And then, when the and when the the the, uh, the heart is truly aware of of not self, then it is free from the conceit of I am of asmimana, and that is nibbana here and now. So that uh, sustaining the the insight, developing the anicca sanya and uh, Using that to cultivate an attitude of of, self, of selflessness, of really seeing through uh, I and me and mine in in every moment, action and and, and speech, every uh, uh, every aspect of the the day the day and its activities, then that's exceptionally meritorious. And so when uh, but. Culturally, say in countries like Thailand or Sri Lanka or Burma, when they talk about merit, then the whole aspect of mind training somehow gets forgotten. And uh, or the, one of the ways it comes up is um, when people, when monks would want to disrobe, they go to Ajahn Chah or, or any other Ajahn and say, "Oh Ajahn, you, my merit has run out. Mot bun, my my merit is exhausted. I, I have to disrobe." And Lumpur Chah would just say, "Well, just make some more, idiot." You know, or you know, words to that effect. <laughs> it's not like you just got a, a particular amount that's that's going to run out. It's like you can make more merit, you know, right now. You know, just to, if you just change your attitude, it's not as though there's a, a limited commodity. You know, it's a limited commodity that, but that's a, a way that people think about. Oh, my merit has run out, therefore I have to disrobe. Or, 
but um, he he would give that what they call short shrift, like uh, not give that much space to that kind of idea. Like that, if you really, if you think your merit has run out, well then, <laughs> get, you know, get on your get on your mat and uh, and work with your mind, and then make some more merit. So that, uh, but I feel that's very significant teaching because it's pointing out that, you know, and the Buddha was a genius at coming up with these very compelling images like this 84,000 silver pots filled with gold, 84,000 gold pots filled with silver, you know, 10,000 elephants, 10,000 horses, and, and like, whoa, it's a huge amount of valuable stuff, but far more meritorious than making a gift worth billions and billions of pounds is to genuinely see anicca that everything is necessarily in a state of change that's more valuable uh, in terms spiritually more valuable than making a, an offering of, of hundreds of billions of, of pounds and that uh, so it's a compelling image <laughs> right and so if you if you take that to heart then that's the 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 source of merit is the um is the mind itself, it's not just the material offerings. So that's why they, they talk about um, Amisa Puja, the, uh, a puja or an act of devotion based on material things. And then Patipati Puja is the, um, um, uh, an offering of your practice. <laughs> or Amisadana, Abhayadana, and Dhammadana. Yeah. Material gifts, the gift of fearlessness based on keeping the precepts, and then dhammadana, the 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 the, the gift of of dhamma itself. So that that's a theme that appears in quite a few different places. But when we think of of, of making merit or what merit is, it culturally gets locked onto you know offering offering food or money or material things. But that's the most sort of tangible or, or um, or a visible form, but far more beneficial is the uh, pati pati puja, <laughs> the kind of offering of your practice, or, or, you know, or the uh, amisa uh, of uh, abhayadana, giving a fearlessness and dhammadana. Okay, so to continue. We have to realize that the populace will come here and look at the nuns, the monks and the monastery. They needn't ask you anything. They can just see your kutis and the monastery grounds. The place is neat and clean. Everything is put away where it should be. This is the behavior of summoners, good uh, uh, spiritual practitioners. And consequently, people will naturally feel faith. We don't have to preach to them. If things are messy... We all lend a hand to straighten it up. When I was younger, I used to walk around the monastery at odd times to take a look at the kutis and paths in the forest. When I found a kuti in a bathroom that were clean, the paths well swept, I knew this was a person who was a good practitioner. If she'd not yet entered into practice, she was certainly going to become good in the near future. Some make light of this, thinking it's a small thing. It isn't. When I see a dirty bathroom, it shows me that the person is not attentive. It's a sign of extreme coarseness. 
Such a person needn't talk about practicing Dharma at all. I wouldn't ask others to find out who it is whose bathroom is such a mess. Sorry, I would ask others to find out who it is whose bathroom is such a mess. No water in the barrel, termites all over, spider webs hanging, the floor dirty. Oh, it's so-and-so. He says he's too busy practicing meditation to clean the bathroom. What kind of meditation is he doing with a filthy bathroom? So, here we all pay attention to our surroundings and help each other to take care of things. This itself is teaching. It will cause people to have faith and trust. Do the trees in the forest teach us something? Sometimes we like some of the trees. We may feel they look beautiful and have a nice smell and so forth. The trees are just growing according to their nature. And on our own side, we develop these good feelings about them. It's similar with the situation in the monastery. We don't need to go teaching people, trying to impress something on them. We only need to We only need to develop ourselves through our own practice. This will naturally attract them. I thought about this for a long time. From my sixth year as a monk, I considered what it entails to establish a monastery. I came to the conclusion that it is only important to be practicing well. It's not necessary to look to anything else. We don't need to go requesting donations or proclaiming ourselves to the public. If we're really practicing... The requisites of dwellings, food, robes and medicines will all come. I really feel that if you're practicing well, the gods will know. They will gather around you. At the very least, they'll want to offer food. If they don't do this, they suffer headaches and their heads will split open. They must have this desire to come. Not just here, but even if you're living on a mountain. Wherever you are, this will happen. Though they do not know you and have never seen or heard of you before, they must come because they are attracted by the virtuous quality of your practice. So that's an interesting point. This was something that uh, Lumpur Chah would say quite often, that uh, the, uh, you, uh, if you go to visit a monastery, he said the first thing to do is to check the toilets. You know, it doesn't matter how much gold there is or on, the, on the temple or how, how uh, fancy the shrine is. It's go, go and check the toilets. <laughs> You'll find out whether it's a... It's a, a monastery where people practice well or not. So if the toilets are, are unkempt and, and uh, dirty, then, you know, okay, it doesn't matter how much gold there is in the shrine room, but uh, it's, it's not a place that's, uh, that's impressive or inspiring. <coughs> and also this, um, said, don't feel you have to proclaim, uh, don't need to go requesting donations or proclaiming ourselves to the public. If we're really practicing, the requisites of dwelling food robes and medicines will come. So this was something that was uh, quite significant when uh, the Sangha came to, uh, to London. And uh, so Lumpur Chah was, he was going to go back to Thailand. He was going to leave Lumpur Sumedho, Lumpur Kemadamo, and Ajahn Anando, Ajahn Viradamo here in, in, in England. And so they were a bit concerned, like, well, how should we let people know that we're here? You know, with you visiting, then it's been a certain amount of of um, news spreading and the, the uh, Thai community been showing up, but uh, you know, should we put up notices about meditation classes or advertise in the local paper or uh, what? What should we do to let people know that there is a meditation guidance and these uh, pujas and teachings going on at the at the vihara? And Lumpur Chah's comment famously was, um, "If you make good soup, people get to hear about it." You don't have to advertise anything. Just you know, just do what you do. Don't have to make any kind of 
um, outreach that just by uh, by practicing in a good way, then you know, word spreads. If you make good soup, people get to hear about it, and it's absolutely true. So they they never put up notices on on telephone poles or <laughs> or in the local paper or anything, and didn't have to advertise the meditation classes on the tube or anything of that nature and uh, and things developed in a very extraordinary way the um the giving of the chithurst uh, forest and then um the uh, the whole move down to the countryside uh, all of that just came from them practicing at the Hampstead vihara uh, as for this, the the mythology about the devas suffering headaches if they don't make offerings, uh, you might not believe that to be true, but uh, I would say it's a uh, it's a, an interesting consideration, and that um, that uh, part of the the mythology of uh, Buddhist cosmological setup, and so that uh, that. But it's also said that uh, devas are very distractible, um, venerable. Uh, um, Ananda Maitreya, when he was here, uh, he uh, was this, this very um, knowledgeable and uh, wise Sri Lankan monk. He had uh, his, his attendant had was senior to Ajahn Sumato when he came here. He spent his seventieth reigns here, and he he, uh, he had more reigns himself than the whole the rest of the sangha put together. So he was his seventieth vasa, and if you added up everybody else's vasas, they didn't come to seventy. So. Very, very senior. He spoke about twelve or thirteen languages. Very, very knowledgeable. Anyway, one of the he could speak. He could converse in Pali. He could have a conversation in Pali. And anyway, so he said one of the the um, points he made about devas. He said uh, there's a, a passage where it says Sabe Deva Mahamulanti, which he translated as these devas. They are utterly foolish fellows. So that they are. Devas are very foolish. They're very distractible, and so that they can get taken up with the the delights of the deva realms. And so, uh, it's um, it's uh, when they are but when they are close to people who are good practitioners, then there's an inclination to draw close and to <coughs> offer their their goodwill and support in various ways. But I think also you can consider devas as in good-hearted people, so that if they're if you're practicing well, and it's not just angelic beings appearing out of the ether but also good-hearted local folks will show up and put things in your bowl as well so any thoughts questions comments okay thus Practice is the most precious thing for us. If we really practice to the end, there will be no problems or obstacles. If you end up establishing a monastery, you needn't go making requests for anything. People will come to offer what you need. They will come to build the place. We don't have to ask people to lend a hand. They come naturally because we've been creating virtue. It comes flowing in like this. That we are able to live here now is because of our meritorious karma and good practice. If the community is quarrelling, if the abbot is worldly-minded, is a worldly-minded person, if there are disputes and contention, what can come of that? They may well come and burn us down. Understand this. 
We can stay here now, totally dependent as we are on the support of lay people because of our practice. I try to stay and help out. One year I went away. Everything started running out. No incense, no candles, no kerosene. Just about everything was finished. Nobody was coming to offer anything. Why was that? Because there were few here who were really practicing well. When I returned, you were all glad to see me. Oh, Lumpur's back. Great. Now there'll be good meals again. <laughs> you think that all the good things left when I left. Who is it that takes them away? It's just your own lack of virtue. or la uh, it's, it's just your own virtue or lack of it that determines this. Make your practice better and this won't happen. You don't need to worry. You only need to create virtue. Wherever I go, I don't lack for anything. Why? Because of renunciation. If I wanted to, I could fill bags with the offerings, but I prefer to share it all with the monks and nuns at Wat Pong and the branch monasteries. Sometimes people bring medicine that's supposed to be specifically for me. If another monk is sick and needs it, I tell them to give it to him. If he takes the medicine, I feel better. I get well because of the merit involved. I don't need to take the medicine myself. So this is... <laughs> This is one of those uh, f uh, frequently observed things, but it, it is true, you know, and uh, that this is the way thing that the way things work when um, when uh, we uh, opened up a Payagiri monastery. Um, we we knew that we were acquiring the land, and there was a little bungalow and a couple of outbuildings there, a garage and a few sheds, um, but we hadn't thought very uh, very much about the practicalities of actually starting a monastery, so. When we when we first showed up in 1996, the entire um, toolkit of the monastery was one Swiss Army knife and a hammer. <laughs> that was what we had to to build the monastery with. So, hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do about this? And so then, uh, without us making any effort, uh, then word spread that uh, these monks were a bit clueless and hadn't got very much in the way of. of uh, of tools and, and equipment and then uh, a friend of ours uh, in Michigan um, Richard Smith uh, then went around his various friends in in Michigan the Detroit area and said without us knowing without uh, the, on his own initiative he asked his friends have you got any extra tools any saws and hammers and chisels and screwdrivers and and he went around there's uh, various friends. America is very, uh, very rich in good, good tools and equipment, and, and so um, he ended up making about five trips. He he would fill up his van with all sorts of uh, tools and gear in Michigan, and then drive all the way out to California, which is a long way. <laughs> the, yeah, probably about sixteen hundred miles, eighteen hundred miles. Uh, drive all the way out to California and then bring us all this uh, these you know, tools, saws and chisels and screwdrivers and, and equipment, a table saw and um, all those kind of things. And he did about about maybe five or six trips of that nature, just gathering up things and, and bringing it. We never asked him for anything, but uh, that was that came on its own. The um, when we arrived, we had uh, the previous year we'd had a temporary. Um, Vihara in a place called um, Novato, and uh, one of the um, the members of the the committee, the board of directors, her partner uh, liked to to do uh, 
to make, uh, do things in, in woodwork. And he'd made up a, a, sign, a carved wooden sign saying Vihara. So uh, we hung this outside the gate of this place we had in Novato, which is about 25 miles north of San Francisco. And so one of the things we did have when we arrived at Apayagiri, we, along with our hammer and our Swiss army knife, we had a sign that said Vihara. So, okay, we can, we can hang out the sign. So we hung this sign up by, uh, by the gate. And then um, about three or four days after we hung the sign up, this fellow came in and said, yeah, I saw the sign in your gate. Um, I'm a Buddhist, and my, my brother was a monk in Sri Lanka, so I recognized the word. And, you know, I guess you guys are Buddhists. And they, well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, my brother was a monk in Sri Lanka, and I saw the word Vihara. And then he got chatting, and he and it turned out, he said, um, my, my favorite things to do are to, uh, to build little huts and make trails through the forest. <laughs> Okay, and, and your your brother's a monk, and, and where do you live? I'm just uh, on Cave Creek Road, just about a couple of miles down the road. So, okay, so we we were we had a lot of faith and uh, and energy, but we didn't have a lot of building skills. But this fellow literally said that's what he liked to do: build little huts, and make trails through the forest. So he would gave us. Uh, this was in the first week of us arriving, in so. Okay, well, someone's looking after us, yeah, and uh, and so that was he built the first um, first five kutis for us at uh, Abhayagiri, a guy called David Dawson. And so, uh, yeah, things do do show up, and they 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 look after themselves, but it does depend on you practicing well, <laughs> and uh, and also not asking for anything, not expecting anything, or not maneuvering or manipulating or or, or such like, so that. Um, the uh, you know we didn't hang the vihara sign up to see. I wonder if there's any Buddhists around here. We'll see if we can <laughs> persuade any of them to help. It was just we've got this sign. Oh, I guess we can just one of the few things that we possess. We can just hang this on the gate and let and then uh, let people know that we're here. So it, uh, these these things do work in a, a rather miraculous and, and wonderful way. Uh, any thoughts? Questions? Yeah, I'll leave it there. There's a, a lengthy story about Venerable Sariputra and Mahamogalana, to, uh, but I'll leave it there for today and we can finish with that tomorrow. <laughs>